Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, are Acts 5, verses 12 through 29, Psalm 111, Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8, and John 20, verses 19 through 31. You've heard me say before that as believers in Christ, we live in the eternal hope granted by Christ on that first Easter, and that makes us Easter people. As such, we aren't just wandering through life without a purpose, quite the opposite. We are on a journey with a definite direction. And as anyone on a journey, it is important to know the destination. So I think it absolutely appropriate that we spend the Easter season with the destination in mind. That's why we'll be spending the next several weeks in the book of Revelation. Most of us have likely been in a situation where we were expected to give emotional comfort to someone who was in pain, or in a situation where someone has come to us with a serious problem and they are seeking guidance. When that happens, it's particularly awkward if we don't know what to say. It's even worse for pastors, where there is the expectation of competence and wisdom. Most of you don't know that my first ministry assignment was as a youth pastor for a small rural church in Indiana. Instead of getting paid, I got to live in the parsonage. This was before seminary and served as a chance for me to get my feet wet in ministry and to confirm my calling. The senior pastor lived 30 minutes away in the next town over, so he knew there was always the possibility that I might be needed on short notice if there was an emergency and the senior pastor couldn't make it. Wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happened my first month on the job. An older gentleman who was one of the pillars of the church passed away suddenly. I knew who he was, but not most of his family, nor had I ever been to his house. I got a call from his senior pastor telling me what had happened and saying he couldn't make it. He wanted me to go to their house as a pastoral representative and to sit with the grieving family. I had no idea what I was walking into nor did I know what I was going to say or do. The latter first century church was not all that different from this grieving family in Indiana. The disciples were mostly gone. Persecution of the faithful was commonplace, and false teachers abounded. Who was there of the stature of Peter and Paul and James who could set things right? Same person we have today, Jesus. When we think of the book of Revelation, we tend to think of what it means for us or for future generations. We often overlook what it meant to those who read it at the time it was written. And that's a mistake. In Revelation, we get a glimpse of Jesus as pastor to his church, where he gives both comfort and a call to action, just as he does for the faithful today. Because we'll be spending five weeks in Revelation, some background is in order. The book of Revelation starts with John, exiled for his faith to the small island of Patmos. The Romans typically sent political prisoners there. The early church historian Eusebius wrote that John was sent there during the time of persecution under Emperor Domitian in 95 AD. The church father Irenaeus agreed. Biblical scholars debate whether this was the disciple John, John the Elder, 
or even written entirely by one person. However, it is evident that the primary author was a Palestinian Jew for whom Greek was not his native language. John was also clearly well known by the recipients of his letter, and he was someone whose authority they respected. The book of Revelation is unique in the New Testament, being of the apocalyptic genre. In fact, the Greek word we translate as revelation is apocalypsis. This was a common form of writing among Jewish authors, such as Daniel. But it was not only an apocalypse, it was also a circular letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. John had every reason to be struggling. Not only was he exiled for his belief, away from his family and his fellow workers in the faith, but the expectation had been that Christ would return within one generation of his ascension. So what was taking so long? Beyond that, the church was facing persecution by both Roman authorities and Jews, and numerous false teachers led many Christians astray. Emperor worship was a growing cult that the church was competing against. According to chapter 2 of Revelation, the church in Ephesus had abandoned their earlier love and no longer did the works they had previously. Some in Pergamum listened to false teachers. Immoral practices were a problem for the church in Thyatira. The works of the Christians in Sardis were found wanting. According to Revelation 3.8, the church in Philadelphia had little power. And the church in Laodicea was famously lukewarm. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the early church was a mess in the era when the leadership was passing from the first generation of disciples to the next. I can say this with confidence because though the specifics change, the church has never been without its struggles. We no longer live in a world of emperor worship, but we worship so many other things today, both inside and outside the church. In society as a whole, we worship the self through a carefully curated image on social media in search of affirmation in the forms of followers, likes, and retweets. Americans today are leaving the church in droves. Christianity is no longer mainstream. We are also living in a time of rampant misinformation and resulting distrust. This goes beyond just the news media and includes distrust of the Bible itself. Verses in the Bible about, someone, about sometimes brutal conquest of the Holy Land, owning slaves, and women being submissive lead people to declare that the Bible is actually evil because they don't care to learn what these verses really mean. Add to that our toxic political environment. Take any sample of popular media, and it is immediately apparent that anger and fear are the drugs of choice in America today. Each of these problems in the surrounding culture make it harder for the faithful today, but the church has its own internal problems as well. The church today has a leadership problem. It's all too common to hear of a celebrity pastor falling due to immoral behavior of all stripes. While sin among leaders is nothing new, it seems to be that in recent decades we have established church cultures that are practically designed to get that very outcome. We worship political leaders within our tribe, willingly changing our long-held beliefs for political expediency because Christians fear losing political influence. 
We also care more about our comfort and respectability than we do the lost so that we won't take a risk and share our testimony with an unsaved friend. And that's assuming we have any friends. Americans today, Christians and otherwise, are more isolated than ever before. What we need is spiritual intimacy with a small group of Christian friends, but we don't even know we need it. I imagine John stuck on a small island of Patmos, praying daily and wondering, what is God up to? When will Jesus return as he promised? And then he showed up. John writes that Jesus sent him an angel to write a message to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The message is both instruction for the here and now and a vision of things to come. We'll focus on the first part today and the second part over the course of the coming weeks. In sending this vision to John, the Son of God was showing him that he and the church weren't forgotten. Jesus didn't ascend to his throne and immediately give up on his church. Not at all. That must have been just what John needed in that moment. Jesus was being a pastor to John. The flip side is also true. Jesus wanted John to remember him. He reminded John who he was, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus always was and always will be. He won't forget us nor abandon us. Also, at, like a good pastor, Jesus didn't comfort John with, didn't just comfort John with his presence. He motivated him to be engaged in ministry. He told John to bear witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, which was not primarily for his benefit, but for the benefit of his readers. It was sort of a holy kick in the pants. Jesus was also being pastor to the seven churches. They were kind of a mess and in need of an intervention. Interestingly, Jesus didn't tell John to write seven letters, one to each church. He told him to write one letter that all would read. Think of it as a group text where each recipient receives a personal message but sees the message to everyone else. In other words, they each got to read each other's mail. I believe that doing it this way increased accountability since each congregation knew what was expected of the others. But just as with John, Jesus gave both comfort and a call to action. Towards the end of his message to the church at Laodicea, which was the harshest of all, Jesus said, Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. That one sentence encapsulates the message to the seven churches. As a good pastor, Jesus knew exactly what John and the churches of Asia Minor needed, both in terms of encouragement and action. Jesus hasn't retired from his pastoral role. He is still our pastor today. I know we are used to hearing about Jesus as a good shepherd, a king, our advocate, and the church's groom, to name a few but not so much pastor. We do understand the Holy Spirit as a guide and helper, so perhaps it's easier to see him as a pastor. I don't want to split hairs today, but I also don't want to ignore the vital role of the Holy Spirit. As any good pastor, Jesus speaks the truth. 
I wish I could say that every word I've ever preached has been entirely accurate. And though I try, I can't promise that. Jesus, on the other hand, lives and speaks truth perfectly. His mercy doesn't ignore sin. He offers both compassion and conviction equally. John 8.11 sums this up perfectly, where he told the woman caught in adultery he didn't condemn her, but she needed to stop sinning. Jesus also loves his flock. I mean, really loves his flock. We know he willingly died for us. He also loves us enough to encourage us when we need it and to convict us of sin when we fall. He won't give up on us. And he knows us inside and out. Pastor Brooke has been at Epworth for over 20 years, and yet I am confident there are things about each and every one of us in this room that he does not know. Jesus knows your deepest, darkest secrets, including ones you can barely admit to yourself. And he loves you anyway. In fact, he doesn't just love you despite them, he loves you because of them. Our weakness draws out his compassion, just as a parent's compassion wells up for a young child who has scraped the knee. That's the kind of spiritual intimacy we need. As humans, we long for intimacy, including spiritual intimacy. We yearn to be known down to our very soul. Jesus offers that. The spiritual intimacy Jesus offers is both a comfort and a mission. He commissioned the church to be his hands and his feet, which means we don't just receive intimacy with Jesus, but with one another. But that kind of intimacy only happens if we intentionally seek it and are willing to step up and offer it to others. That's where the mission comes in. Our faithfulness to the calling of Christ includes a calling to each other. We aren't spiritual hermits. We need to be there for one another through thick and thin, even when it's uncomfortable. And believe me, at times, it will be uncomfortable. How do you think John felt, writing to the church at Laodicea, that Jesus was going to spit them out? Especially knowing that the other six churches were going to read that. I'm sure it wasn't any more comfortable for him to write it than it was for that congregation to read it. But John was faithful to the calling to his brothers and sisters in Christ, as should we. I have one last point about fulfilling our mission to each other. Each of us has a specific role to play that is uniquely ours. John had to write the letter to the seven churches. You have people in your life that need you. That includes fellow Christian fellow Christians who may have to learn or lean on your compassion and your godly wisdom, as well as non-believers who would accept a spiritual testimony from you and no one else. Even as John was able to make his unique contribution despite being in exile, Christ will help us to overcome any obstacle to fulfill our purpose. When I arrived at the house of the grieving family as an untrained, brand-new pastor, I was greeted with love. I didn't know what to say, so I said very little. But they were glad I was there. My presence was enough. There were tears, but there was also joy. 
they knew the departed saint was with Jesus. I was deeply moved to be part of it. As our pastor, Jesus wants to be welcomed into our lives, and he offers us intimacy and purpose. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.